0: I think it's important to visualize being in a particular situation that's going to require you to overcome and maybe feeling the adversity feeling the turmoil as long as that visualization is going to finish with how you want it to end so my mom one day said reagan don't think about the pink elephant in the room and then she paused and she said what'd you just think about and i said the pink elephant she said i told you not to she proved to me that saying sentences like don't do this Your brain is now clinging to the key word that you told it not to do. So instead, what can we use? Hit the ball. Make solid contact. See the ball, hit the bat, right? So we're essentially framing the same intent, but we're rephrasing it so that our brain is only hearing the actionable, positive things that we want. I got you.
1: So when did you when did you make that move?
0: So this March will be two years. Yeah. Wow. So was living in the Atlanta area. I went to school in UGA, which is mm-hmm. in Athens. Um, moved to Atlanta, which is like an hour away from Athens. Mm-hmm. Atlanta was cool, but it was still, you know, busy. Just a, a really big, busy city. Um, I was like an hour away from the mountains, and it was around that time that I'd actually just like found running, and so. I was like, you know what? Let's just like see what this is like. Moved to Colorado. um, So coming up on on two years ago and have absolutely loved it. Again, like I was saying a minute minute ago, it's like sometimes I'm like, man, I want to be closer to home. Mm -hmm. So like happy mediums that I've thought of is like, you know, maybe somewhere back on the East Coast, but not quite so South, maybe going somewhere like North Carolina or something like that so that I still have good access to mountains and trails, but can Mm -hmm. be potentially a drive away from family if I ever wanted to be.
1: Yeah, I mean, Colorado's where I fell in love with running. It just so happened, like, we moved there for eight months at a time where I was training for my first marathon, got connected with a really great community there, and then obviously just being in that environment. You get yeah. to train at elevation, so that's an added benefit, but yeah, you're, you're in a place where it's, it's like the normal thing to do. Normal, yeah. And like you, kind of coming from a smaller town, I think yours sounded smaller than mine, but... Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a small town, and, you know, now being back, I am an outlier <laughs> for, yeah. um, you know, what I'm doing, and even in something as simple as running, I'm by no means the only person person running around here, but, you know, to, to set some of these goals, to mm-hmm. really, like, prioritize it so highly in your life, it does make you an outlier unless you're in a place like that.
0: No, it absolutely does. I mean, even... Even in the more northern part of Georgia, where I spent a lot of time between college and moving to Atlanta, like, sure, people got out and about, but there wasn't this like really heavy uh, involvement in things like Mm -hmm. big endurance feats. And here in Colorado, you have like no excuse to not be outside. Like, there's 300 days of sunshine here a year, Mm -hmm. and you go out on a Saturday and you see people of all ages right like we're we're not just talking about people in their prime i mean you've got you've got older folks out here on the trails you've got people with their kids like just doing anything they can be hiking running cycling it you just see it everywhere and it's like such a cool environment to be a part of
1: well i think it's a great jumping off point reagan sykes welcome to the podcast i'm so happy we could sit down and have this discussion um you know the world of social media, you, you feel like you have a connection with somebody, you're in the same circles, but I love podcasting because it's just like the best excuse to sit down and have a really meaningful conversation with someone and especially someone like yourself who um, I know you have value to provide a listener. So many amazing perspectives through your life experiences, through the things you've done recently and uh, in in recent years. I didn't know that about you, that you kind of chose to leave that small town um, in Georgia to, to move to Colorado, I, I would only imagine that, like, there was some discomfort in doing that.
0: hmm Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I knew nobody, right? Like, it's – you come out here just, like, hoping that it ends up being exactly what you think that it's going to be. Mm-hmm. Now, with saying that, like, I've made some really awesome friends and have found people to run with, people who maybe – don't enjoy running at all, but like still can find some commonalities with people. And um, there certainly was, but you know, one thing that I'm super grateful for is that like my, I'm super close with my family. So even being further away from them by like physical miles, it never necessarily changed how often we communicate. And I think like, even if you, you know, glance at my social media, you can even see how often my, Families here, my mom and dad, my sisters, I mean, they were all at my 100. They'll be at a race that I'm running in in February. So, a lot of people I don't think can say that they moved far away and that it did not impact the frequency in which they see their family. And, like, I really am probably an anomaly in saying that I borderline I've seen my family more since moving across the country in Colorado than I did when I was four hours north of them in college. And I don't know what that is. I don't know if maybe like being out here gives them a reason to come and travel and see new places, if it's Mm -hmm. the races that are maybe bringing them together. But yeah, it's to have family, to have parents in Georgia. I have a sister in Hawaii, another sister in Utah, and then a fourth, a third sister. There's four of us. um, She actually did move out here for college. Uh, Side tangent, I think she's going to go back home to go to college. She's missing home a little bit, but Mm -hmm. I've got a baby sister like 10 minutes away.
1: Wow. Yeah, that's yeah. incredible. I mean, you mentioned quantity like the fact that you don't don't feel like it's impacted quantity uh to much of a degree if any is is really impressive. One thing that I've noticed um with just having periods of my life recently of living away from family is it's improved the quality of mm-hmm. the time. Maybe the quantity's not there, but when you take yeah. you know, when you take the availability of seeing someone away, mm-hmm. it magnifies the moment that you're around them and it it just makes you want to invest more into that and it makes you realize in many ways um, you know in in a reflectionary way that you weren't always present you weren't Mm -hmm. always investing in quality and I'm I'm not perfect in that I still have times where I take those moments and those interactions with people for granted but that's been a really big lesson for me in the last two years of living in different places isolated from family is that when i'm around them i do want to invest in that and i want to be present
0: yeah yeah and it's it can be tough i mean i was um i know when when me and abby were exchanging a few messages and this was after she listened to my podcast with joe Mm -hmm. she was like man she's like you and austin have a lot in common with you guys's ability to like not just sit still. And, you know, maybe we can talk about being present in in a number of different ways, but I think like something that at least from her perspective, she said you and I probably align on is like the example of like being on vacation or traveling where routine is a little bit out of whack. And it's so hard to turn that switch off. Like I seem to think that if I'm traveling or if I'm on vacation or if I'm visiting family, like I have this notion in my mind that I can completely replicate my at-home routine to be the exact same of when I'm not at home. Mm-hmm. And it has been a really, a really hard lesson to learn that it's not always going to happen that way. But I think the more often that we put ourselves in an environment where things are not always going to be exactly how we want them and we like recognize that it's okay to be flexible and find compromises like the more that we can do that the better we are going to be at it in the future I mean because like we're not getting any younger like we're always going to be in these situations where we have to find a little bit more flexibility and at the end of the day like if we're not doing it for us we certainly need to be doing it for the people that we're around because like they want to see us happy and comfortable and not necessarily so consumed with, oh, I need to go make sure that I like hit this exact workout routine that I would at home, or I need to eat the exact same way I would at home. So.
1: It's, it's such a hard lesson to learn. Um, you know, I've had moments in my life where I've disappointed myself, and I've had moments in my life where I've disappointed other people. Uh, and when you disappoint someone that you love dearly, it hurts so much more than um, any disappointment that you could put on yourself, yeah, and it's in moments where i've I've been unable to be flexible, where I've cared more about my routine and my schedule over the opportunities that I have to experience life with mm-hmm. the people I love. It's been those moments where I've learned those hard lessons, and what I've found in in recent months in really thinking about the decisions that I'm making and the agreements that I'm making with myself. Because what I end up doing is I say, you know what? I'm going to allow myself to get off of my routine for this, let's say, vacation. Yeah. And it's going to be okay. And um, I will, you know, do what I can. I'll certainly stick to certain structures, but other things are just not a priority. Yeah. And then the week or the day comes and you still think you can do it all. You think yeah. you can make every single thing happen that you're used to doing, and it's like we're, we're trying to operate at 100% of full capacity mm-hmm. at all times, and the, the point of pride that I've had recently is the ability to be flexible mm-hmm. and the ability to make changes uh, in the moment, really, more than ahead of time, because like i said you can you can change something up ahead of time but what are you going to do in the moment are you going to stick to that plan are you going to allow yourself to follow through yeah and it's it's a it is the follow through that yeah. is what it requires to to be present and to uphold priorities it's yeah. really easy to say something's a priority but are you willing to make it a priority when the rubber hits the road
0: yeah yeah so like have you had a have you had a situation recently, whether it was like a vacation or traveling or anything like that, where you had to just like throw normal routine to the side? Yeah.
1: yeah, that's that's a great question. I um I feel like I've had a few. Um I I was on vacation in Florida in September with my parents. Um and this was, you know, pretty close to the peak time of marathon prep. Uh mm-hmm. for this most recent marathon I ran. And I was all in on this prep. I was in a stage of life um, where I could really allow myself to prioritize training. And I knew yeah. that. Yeah. And I don't, I don't take that opportunity lightly because notice how I said I, I was in a stage of life. Like yeah. the stage of life has already shifted. Things are yeah. already very different than they were just three months ago. Um, but I also knew that this opportunity to take this vacation with my parents would not always be there. And right. that I I had to take that chance. Now, I didn't change anything about my marathon prep in terms of like the training that I needed to accomplish, but the other aspects of it, I was allowing myself to be more flexible in. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, the the recovery, the nutrition, uh, the strength training. Like, I don't think I lifted the entire time I was on vacation. Which yeah. Um, as part of like a a marathon prep or an an ultra prep as as you know like strength training is huge we love doing it it makes us feel better um and it obviously keeps us stronger for you know the times where we need to perform um but all of that i i was allowing myself to be more flexible in i still got all my workouts done i made sure to um you know just adjust the daily schedule Mm -hmm. however it needed to be adjusted i had I had a workout that was, it was probably the hardest workout of marathon prep Yeah. because I was doing it on vacation. It was a workout that, that should have been done on the track. Um, and I ended up having to do it on just a stretch of sidewalk. Basically yeah. it was a one K repeats. So I, I would just run one K down the sidewalk, turn around, we're on one K back 12 times. And, um, it was pretty miserable. I'm not going to lie. It was the hardest workout. Uh, I think I had of that marathon prep and I knew that it could have been easier had I done it on the track, had I been in my, you know, ideal routine or situation, but that wasn't the point. And also something interesting is like, so often we travel for these races and Mm -hmm. things aren't ideal then either. We just assume that we can create the perfect environment at all times and it's not reality.
0: Yeah. Well, and the other thing to that too is like, put yourself back in any sort of circumstance where things could not be exactly how you wanted them to. And in the present moment, you're like completely tripping out, right? You're like getting frustrated. It never fails once that time period is over 99% 99% of the time, you don't look back on it and go, oh my gosh, I didn't I didn't do anything that I was supposed to. I didn't have my normal routine. Like As mm-hmm. I'm saying this, I'm reflecting on the Hawaii vacation that I took after my 100. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I didn't do a whole lot. I might have run a couple of times. And again, even though I was coming right off the 100, you would think I'd be the easiest on myself. Yeah. I wasn't. But... It, while I was in that vacation, I found myself easily getting frustrated at maybe like like eating out a lot and not working out as much. But once the vacation was over and I was home, I was not having those thoughts anymore, right? So mm-hmm. if sometimes we can just take the, take the mindset that we're in in the present moment and like shift it to the future Reagan, the future Austin, mm-hmm. and like assume that we're going to look back on this vacation or whatever it is. I know we keep using vacation as an example, mm-hmm. but – nine times out of ten, we're not going to look back and regret regret how we handled a situation if we allowed working out to just, like, take a back seat, right? Mm-hmm. Like, we typically are okay with it. It's just in the moment we don't think we're ever going to be.
1: Yeah. You know, the best thing I did for myself, I, I'll just say the best thing I've done for myself in the, in the past 12 months is give myself what I called and will continue to call an off-season after... Mm-hmm. Uh, my 100 miler in February, and I'll, I'll be interesting to hear your perspective on this and and your experience because it was really hard. I yeah. I don't think I expected the time following um, that race to be as hard as it was. Yeah. Uh, not physically, um, to be honest. Like I really enjoyed and appreciated the the ability to see my body recover from a race like that, mm-hmm. and. Uh, I feel like I respected my body pretty well and in, in how I treated it and my ability to take a step back from running, mm-hmm. enjoy other styles of training and movement. Um, and really, I didn't train for another goal until I began training for this marathon um, yeah. this past summer. And
0: yeah.
1: I I had to have the conversation with myself that when I set a goal, and when I train for it, I am all in, and I'm mm-hmm. going to invest very heavily. And I always say like the pursuit of these goals is more mentally and emotionally exhausting than it is physically. Yeah. It's agree. physically hard, but that's what we're seeking. Yeah. What we don't understand is is all that comes with it and all that yeah. it can take from other areas of our lives and the ability to contrast those months where I gave myself more grace and I I truly just I ran or I lifted because I wanted to, because it was going to make me feel better on that day, in that yeah. moment, it allowed me to then be all in and be also in a really healthy spot going into this most recent marathon prep. Yeah. How are you following uh, your 100 miler? How long ago is it now that we're uh, recording yeah. today?
0: We are two and a half months. Yeah. Yeah. So I raced on September 15th into September 16th. I was out there for beyond 24 hours. Um, And gosh, the first 10 days was really tough. Um, I think the, let me, let me back up the, the few days after it, two to three days after it, I would say was easy because like physically my body wasn't going to let me do anything anyways. Like I just hurt from my toes to my head. But then I think where it got tough was I actually bounced back physically. It felt like decently fast, like seven to 10 days. But like science will tell you that the body does not recover from 100, at least the first time doing it, for weeks and for some people even beyond a month. And so when I was physically feeling good, which was kind of like my mind and my body's green light to me that I could start training, it was very hard to fight off those feelings of going back a hundred percent. Um, thankfully the vacation with my family did act as a really good buffer and as like a really good excuse to just kind of like take it, take it easy. But once getting back from vacation, I mean, I was already texting my coach, like ready for programming again. Um, because something about me is that like, I had, there are people in my life who run for fun and Mm -hmm. I don't think that I do. Like, I really and truly think that I run because I love to train. I love to follow a schedule. And so having a running program that I can look to and go, okay, I have a four-mile run today or an eight-mile run is what I enjoy. I don't really know how much I would run if it wasn't on a program, which is interesting because I feel like people hear that and go, wait, if you're not doing it because you love it, why are you doing it? Um, And it really wasn't but about – probably a month, less than a month that I'd already signed up for my next race Mm -hmm. and was like ready, ready to start training. Now, even when I told my coach, hey, I'm ready to start, like start programming programming me mileage, it was low mileage. And in every single note that she was writing, it said, hey, if you don't want to do this, don't. Like here's a loose skeleton for you, but make it your own. She was really good, really good about emphasizing that. Um, It really wasn't until the last, I'd say – two or three weeks that it became more of like, hey, this is what you need to be following right now.
1: Yeah. What what was the desire? I mean, kind of take me to that point because this is very relatable for me. Take me to the point of crossing that finish line because you trained for this race for quite a while as is necessary for 100 miles, right? It's it's huge yeah. and um, it's it's something not to take lightly and it's something to... Just really embrace, and I know you <clears throat> did. I saw you embracing that training and and that goal. I mean, take me to that. What are you seeking? Are you seeking more of the same? Are you seeking the ability to run another race or just to settle back into that training?
0: So, yeah, so to your point, I trained from January to September for it. I threw a little bit of a few races in there in between, Um, but I I think for me, what it is, is like running isn't, it's not easy to me. And I think I joke around and say that I don't love running. I love how much I hate it, which sounds like such a toxic relationship. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's probably not that way all the time. Like right now I would describe running for me as like, I feel like I'm back in my honeymoon stage with it. Every single run I go on, something is just clicking. Like, from a physical perspective, my body feels good. From a mental perspective, I find myself just thinking a lot, which is really fun. I also do, like, a lot of visualizing, which is probably a cool topic to go down. Um, and then from even, like, a cardiovascular, like, uh, aerobic standpoint, like, my heart feels good, my lungs feel good. And so as soon as I got done with the 100, like, yeah, it was, it was an absolutely massive accomplishment. But as most people like us do – I did immediately start reflecting on how could I have run it faster, how could I have problem solved better, how could I have, how could I have avoided some of the problems that I ended up facing out there, and so I knew like within a day or two that I wanted to do the 100 mile distance again, um, but I kind of put that on the back burner. And something that I wanted to immediately start training for was a race that was like shorter and faster. So I'm racing Black Canyon um, 60k in February in Arizona. It's a notoriously fast race. It's actually net down. Um, I know you know what that means, but for any listeners who might be like my mom who just assumed that it was like 40 miles downhill, that just means it starts at a higher elevation than what it ends, right? There are some climbs throughout it, um, but it just, from a net perspective, it's gonna be mostly downhill. Um, And so I think like what I'm looking for ultimately is just like, how can I continue to like find areas of progression? Um, I've run the 40 mile distance before, so obviously I will probably look and compare despite them being drastically different, um, courses. I will probably look and see like, how did I do better in this 40 mile race than the one that I did in July? Like, how did I run faster on the flats and downs of the climbs? Am I able to push faster? Can I have a much better regimen for nutrition? That's a major, major downfall for me is nutrition when racing cannot get that dialed in. Um... So yeah, I mean, the 100 was awesome. I could probably talk an hour along just about that race. Yeah. Um, but it's just I think it's just always being addicted to finding like how it is that I can get better, find another a pain cave and like get out of it and um finding that fork in the road that I talk a lot about where you really are faced with like am I going to keep doing this? Am I going to keep enduring the pain and finish? And you ch- you choose that at that fork.
1: Yeah. I mean, it sounds like the ability to measure And maybe sometimes it's the immeasurable progress that you're looking for. Mm -hmm. Um, The ability to just stay locked in on the task at hand just a little bit more throughout the race. The ability to execute some small aspect, something that many people might not even think about. People who don't run these types of races wouldn't even consider as a really important element to it. Yeah. And that's just the thing that we look for is we look for the ability to improve just a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I, my question to you is, in reflecting on that race, what is the singular moment that you go back to where you say, man, next time I get this opportunity, I'm going to perform better mentally, maybe physically in that moment?
0: Well, the first thing that I made a rookie mistake like a, a rookie mistake. And it impacted and like borderline dictated my race. And that's racing in a pair of shoes that I'd only put like 20 miles in. And it was a brand new pair of shoes. And I don't mean like running in a Nike Pegasus and getting a new Nike Pegasus. I mean, like I'd run 20 miles in the speed land and I decided to go out there and run in the speed land. And there was a moment I knew that I was starting to blister at mile 10 and I knew that I had 90 ahead of me and like blisters are not going to get better right they're only going to get worse so like looking back and and I would even call this more being mentally sharper than physically but when I came into an aid station at mile 14 I to this day don't know why I didn't change my shoes I don't know if it's because I didn't get to look at my feet and see them but I should have changed shoes at mile 14 And I didn't change my shoes until mile 40 because that was the next point that I had a crew accessible aid station. Mm -hmm. Um, And unfortunately, like, that is something, like, blisters covering your feet are something that would put in the, uh, like, physical well-being category. But it's not the kind of, like, being physically better than we're kind of referring to, right? Because I couldn't stop that. So it really just became a mental game of recognizing that I was in a lot of pain and just deciding to to overcome it and like keep pushing. Um, and so the reason why that's a really hard question for me to answer is because even at mile 70, mile 80, I can remember having like gas in the tank from, from a fitness standpoint. I had gas in the tank to actually be doing more jogging. I won't even bother to say running, but like jogging than I was doing. But I couldn't because of the limitation that my feet were putting on me, the blisters were putting on me. Mm -hmm. So, like, I don't even get to sit here and tell you what I could have done better physically, how I could have been better, how I could have been stronger physically because I made such a massive error in just simply planning for the race by putting those shoes on my feet. Mm -hmm. Um, Like, mentally, I couldn't have done better because I was able to mentally fight through through the amount of pain that I was in. Um, there's a particular moment of the race at mile 70. It was like dropping below 40 degrees at this point decent wind and I insisted on a nap in my in the forerunner because I was just I was absolutely falling asleep while running and I asked for a 10 minute map nap. My mom insisted on a 20 minute one and this is a really cool moment for me to reflect on because, when I if I were to hear someone tell that story and I were to listen to them describe the fact that they were getting in the back of a really warm forerunner with blankets and heat and snacks that's mm-hmm. the end right like yep. that's that's the finish line but to know to hear stories but also to remember obviously that when the 20 minute mark was up and that side door opened and the the cold air just bursted into the forerunner and I never not once did I second guess getting out of the car like, that shows me how mentally in it I was. And, that like, I mm-hmm. knew I was going to finish the race, but getting out of the car meant, like, finishing the race meant I needed to get out of the car, and so it was just a non-negotiable. So mm-hmm. I, I love reflecting on that moment.
1: It's a powerful moment. Um, and we'll dive deeper into that here in a second. Really quickly, though, just as a side tangent, was that the first time you have ever been falling asleep while running?
0: 100%.
1: Is it not wild? <laughs>
0: I mean, Austin. I before Run Rabbit, longest distance side run was another sixty k, which yeah. was a, a long sixty k. So instead of being thirty eight, it was like roughly forty. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I mean, I knew I was taking myself to uncharted territories, going from forty to a little over one hundred. It is yeah. it is stupid how delirious you get. Like, yeah. My pacers heard me ask for a trail nap. Over and over and over and Mm -hmm. over, because I just wanted to sleep so badly. And like even getting in the Forerunner, never in a million years could I assume I could fall asleep in like less than twenty seconds, and I did
1: it. Yeah, it um, it was the first time that I had had been falling asleep, actively falling asleep while running Mm -hmm. um, in my race. And did you recognize that that's what it was initially? Because for me, I thought it was issues of nutrition. Maybe that's my rookie mistake: is I had no caffeine plan nothing (laughs) like no plan at all. And I, I didn't even know when those symptoms, you know, sat, uh, but began to creep in. Like I didn't know that was the issue. I thought it was a nutrition problem. Yeah. And we were, we were close enough to the next big aid station that I was like, all right, let's get electrolytes. Let's take a little bit longer and get, you know, a really good amount of food in. And I did all of those things. And the, the first mile outside of that aid station Falling asleep again, I'm like, no. "Ooh, this is not good."
0: Were you by yourself, or did you have a pacer? I had a pacer.
1: I had okay. a pacer, but it, it nothing could help it. Like I was just, I was honestly hoping that I was going to go face down into the ground because I knew that if I just fell asleep and actually hit the ground, it would probably wake me up enough to keep me awake.
0: You almost like wanted to be slapped in the face.
1: Yes, exactly. Yeah,
0: yeah. Um, I too did not have a caffeine plan. I. So, like, I almost bought caffeine pills, Mm -hmm. but I think I was a little bit nervous of trying them for the first time in a race. Yeah. Like, yeah, because when I think about bad episodes with caffeine, like, a million things come to mind. Like, do you get very jittery? Does it upset your stomach? And so, Mm -hmm. again, going back to planning better, pre-planning, I almost should have, like, done more maybe night night runs and tried mm-hmm. some sort of caffeine supplement to know if my body would have been fine because at the point that you're that depleted I can only imagine what caffeine does for you right like it's got to be yeah. tenfold what we get from waking up and drinking coffee in the morning mm-hmm. you know cuz even with coffee in the morning like we have food in our stomachs from like last night and like big meals throughout the day and if i would have taken a caffeine pill at mile 70 like i truly wonder if my blister pain would have just gone away and i would have just like been able to actually run towards the finish line
1: yeah yeah it's definitely something that you know those experiences you never forget those struggles you'll always be able to kind of pull from and that's ultimately what makes you better in both sport and life Mm -hmm. and and truly like I would imagine the same is true for you that's what motivates me to do these things again it's not the moments where things were going well it's not the success it's the moments where I struggled like when I think about running this race or this distance again the thing that truly excites me is reflecting on the moments where i was at my lowest and where i was at my worst and just imagining how i can handle it better the next time
0: yeah that's kind of what i meant earlier when i was talking about visualizing like i've always been a really big fan of the art and the power of visualization And when I talk about it that way, I mean a little bit more intentionally, like using it almost as a strategy to prep yourself for something that's coming up. But something that I've been doing a lot lately when running is like almost accidentally visualizing, like replaying these scenes in my mind, like hearing the conversations that I know were had, you know, feeling the discomfort that I know that was being displayed. And it's just so fun. I mean, you can get lost in that, in like coming back to this really, really, really low moments. But I mean, I mean I also think like it sometimes I think in the ultra world, we really get fixated on only talking about the lows and maybe we like, we almost correlate it too closely with like doing this for the hurt or doing this for the pain yeah. or doing this for like the dark times. But like I think sometimes it doesn't get talked enough talked enough about like just how fun it is. Like it's so much fun to be out there with people who are all doing the exact same thing you are. And for me, like specifically, I had the absolute best crew out there. I mean, friends and family, they had matching t-shirts, they had like setups, we had an Airbnb together. Like, it was so much fun being out on the trail knowing how much fun they were having. Like, I thought about that so much while I was out running.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's moments... Where you're at an aid station and it's not a physical thing, but you're like, I don't wanna leave because yeah. I don't want to leave these people. And <laughs> that's how you out. know it's amazing. <laughs> exactly. I mean yeah. ultras are special in that way for sure. Yeah. Um going back to visualization really quickly, yeah. The one the one word that I really feel when I think about visualization, and l- like you said, it it just happens really. Mm-hmm. Like when you I believe when you care deeply about something and you have Um, very deeply ingrained experiences, which an ultra can easily become just because the amount of senses that are activated Mm -hmm. and the extent to which they're activated, like that doesn't go away very easily, especially Mm -hmm. when you're still doing the thing that got you to that point, you know, you're still running and you know, if I just keep running, I will at some point find that limit, quote unquote Mm -hmm. limit again. But what I find with visualization, especially when it's happening in motion, in running, in some mm-hmm. other form of physical activity, it is truly, like, one of the most empowering feelings mm-hmm. that I have. It it places me in a position, and I don't think, I would argue there are not enough moments for people to feel like they are the main character
0: yeah. of
1: their story. Yeah, I think it's really, I mean, there's so many moments in life where we need to be of service to other people. Mm -hmm. But if we never invest into making it about ourselves to to the point that we see how strong we are, because that's that's what it comes down to is show yourself how strong you are. Put yourself in a position where, you know, the you 12 months ago or longer or even maybe even more recently would have never thought that you could get to that point and continue forward. And yeah. see yourself in that pivotal role because you are in control. You have the strength necessary to overcome it. But if we don't put ourselves in that position, if we don't view ourselves as that that main character, I really like to view it as like you are the hero of your own story. Yeah. When you're in an ultra, you are the hero in that moment. Certainly, like there's a lot of other heroes. Like you yeah. talked about the crew. Everyone in, in the crew at at a certain point of an ultra is like your hero. But when you visualize those moments and you think back to it, you see yourself overcoming it. You see Mm -hmm. yourself in those hard moments. When I think about ultra running, I don't think about the moments where things are going well. I think about the moments where I was struggling because visualizing those things and knowing that I can be even better the next time is an empowering feeling for me.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever, have you ever tested, um, have you ever tested visualization specifically for the benefits of like, let's say you have a race coming up or and you're going for a specific time goal? Like, have you ever tried visualizing specifically from, from an angle of like strategy, like preparing for it? Cause like I, in high school, I read a book that mm-hmm. actually teaches you how to properly visualize mm-hmm. and why there's actually a technique for it, like like neurologically. Mm-hmm. And it is mind-blowing. And it's difficult. But I'm curious if you ever, like, laid in bed at night and, like, if you've put yourself in, say, something that's coming up and mm-hmm. played a scene in your mind and actually yeah. tried to visualize it.
1: I would be really interested if you can recall the name of that book um, because I, I'd definitely be interested to read it. I can't yeah. say that I've ever been extremely intentional with my visualization. Okay. Um, I, I love being in those moments of visualization. It feels like a flow state to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I will say, like, this may come as a surprise to people, um, I, I function very heavily off of emotion. Like that—that okay. that is just something that really makes me creative. Uh, it puts me in a creative spot. It puts me in in a, a spot where I feel like I can do anything as long mm-hmm. as I, uh, you know, invest into it and and care deeply enough about it. When I feel emotion, to me, it means I care, and I know when I care about something, I will take ownership over it. Yeah. And I've just had time and time again in my life moments where I've taken ownership over something and I've seen a positive result from it. Mm-hmm. So my visualization, quote unquote technique, is just like feeling that emotion and running with it. Okay. And and magnifying that emotion and what it'll feel like on race day. Yeah. Um, this most recent marathon, I, I felt like I visualized the finish line so yeah. much. Not yeah. just the finish line, like certainly the harder moments, but the most emotion filled visualization I had was turning right onto the finishing stretch of the race because I'd run this race before. I knew what it was going to look like. And I visualized myself like celebrating and and being empowered by that moment. And you know the funniest part? I, I achieved the result that I had set out to achieve and even exceeded it a little bit, but I didn't have that emotion at the finish line. It wasn't the, there. It the one was that you visualized? Not the one that oh, I visualized, no. but it wasn't a bad thing because I think that the emotion that I was visualizing wasn't born out of the right place. Okay. It was It was built off of negative emotion. The feelings that I had in running down that final stretch into the finish line were just built off of confidence that I trained for this. I put yeah. in the work. I'm not surprised to be here. That's and, what I was gonna
0: say. So like maybe yeah. the the visualizations that you had prior, the emotion was was so amplified because maybe the way you're visualizing was you had just surprised yourself. You had just mm-hmm. like done what maybe you thought you couldn't do, mm-hmm. but instead in reality, when you actually finished it, you finished with so much confidence, knowing that you put in all the training that the 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 expression was maybe just a little bit diluted. Um, mm-hmm. and again, to your point, not because of a bad thing, but because mm-hmm. you had so much confidence in finishing that you didn't have the surprise factor.
1: And so much of it was built off of the false belief that I was doing it for someone other than myself. Yeah. And I think the realization that I had coming into that finish line was like, you did this for yourself Yeah. and you're proud that you did do it and also humbled by the fact that you had so much support to get there and that it wasn't guaranteed like so Mm -hmm. many things can go wrong and they didn't and it was executed to a t and you don't always get those days so i think when you get them to just sit in that that place of gratitude i didn't expect that i didn't expect to feel the gratitude that i felt the peace that i felt really um but it was powerful i think it was even more powerful than the images that i had of you know crossing that finish line in a confident and empowered way to me it was it was crossing that finish line in probably the most grounded state that i'd been able to find in quite some time yeah. and that's exactly what i needed because that finish line as compared to the finish line of 100 miles it was a lot different yeah <laughs> it was a yeah. Lot, it was a heck of a lot different
0: yeah no i'm the uh the book is called a strategy for winning So jot that down. Now, I'm going to warn you, it's the entire book is not all about the art of visualizing. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a pretty big section on it. Um, But what's really cool about this visualization technique um, is, so if you imagine, like imagine your brain is split between conscious and subconscious. And like in this visual, imagine that it's the top half of your brain that is the conscious mind and it is the bottom half of the brain that is the subconscious mind. And so what we assume the subconscious mind is things like muscle memory, doing things instinctively, doing things almost without thinking, right? And how do we develop muscle memory? We do it the same way every single time, right? So think about like swinging a bat. The more that you do it, the more your body just knows how to do it. At the very very beginning of swinging a bat, that's very conscious thinking. You're thinking about everything that goes into it. And then after 100 times, it doesn't take as much conscious thought because it's just kind of slipping into your subconscious, right? Mm -hmm. So if you think about visualizing, like if you test it tonight and you lay down and you close your eyes, the images that you're going to be producing in your mind, you are consciously doing. You're having to put energy and thought into doing it. Now, the key to visualizing is bringing all five senses to it. So if you go back to that visualization of you running through that finish line, the first thing you said is that you imagine turning right, right? Mm -hmm. So that tells me that you've mastered the sense of seeing in your mind, visualizing, but maybe how well were you also involving the other four senses? The smells that you imagine smelling, the things that you imagine hearing, the things that you imagine feeling, and then the last one, tasting, which is really difficult to do. Mm-hmm. But by doing this in your mind, by getting as absolutely descriptive as you can with all five senses, and you're producing this consciously over and over and over, what begins to happen is that it it truly begins to seep into your subconscious. Okay, So you've done this consciously every single night or multiple times throughout the day. When you are in the situation that you've been spending so much time consciously, consciously seeing and visualizing and hearing, when you show up in that scenario, your mind recognizes it as though you have actually done it every single time. And a testament to this, I have is in high school. I was out for an injury, and I was playing softball. I was out for an elbow injury for two weeks, and. Every time that my, my teammates went into the batting cage, I sat in the corner and I closed my eyes and I visualized. Now, I had a very specific scene. I actually knew what game I would be cleared to play in. And so I was imagining the away team's field that we were going to be playing on. I remember visualizing um, the smell oddly enough of sunflower seeds and maybe sweat because it's hot and it's the middle of summer the things I was hearing were my parents screaming in the bleachers behind me calling me by my nickname instead of my instead of my name um, the things that I was feeling was the routine that I had when I would like tap my cleats with the with the bat and then I would approach it so I was like being as detailed as possible. I would even, like, play different scenes of maybe how the pitch count would go, right? Was I three balls, zero strikes? Was I two strikes, zero balls? And I would do these over and over and over. And my first at-bat, at the game that I imagined myself, I hit the ball dead center to the middle of the outfield fence, absolutely launched it after weeks of not being able to practice. And I remember telling my coach after, I was like, well, it's not that I haven't been practicing. I haven't physically been practicing. But I've been visualizing this for weeks. And so when I got up to the bat, it felt like I had not been out for the time that I had been. And so he talks about this in the book, about how you can do this, not even from a phys like not even not even specifically with sports and, and like in events. You can do this with different visualizations and projections you have for your life, right? Like if I every day spend five minutes visualizing what a life looks like when I have X amount of money in the bank, right? Like, how am I living? How am I budgeting? What am I able to spend more freely on? Like, if you're doing these types of visualizations, it, like, brings manifestation to a whole other level.
1: And how does it, really quickly, how does it make you feel in the moment, too? Like, when you visualize, you mentioned you weren't physically practicing, but I would imagine that through that visualization, you feel all the more prepared in the moment.
0: You do, you do. Like, I can remember approaching... I can remember approaching the plate and actually feeling just like confident. Like I've been doing this and then vice versa. You'll see, and I'm going to expect you to do this and get back with me. But when you're visualizing, you actually, you talk about being someone who's very like emotionally charged. Mm -hmm. You will feel the emotions that you anticipate feeling. Going back to that example of like hitting the softball. I would find myself, I typically did it just like right before going to bed. I wasn't doing it in the middle of the day, just right before going to bed. And I would find myself like accidentally like like jolting as though I was like swinging. And I didn't do this as religiously as I would have liked to have for for the 100. Um, Maybe that's because the 100 was so much unknown that I didn't know what to picture. But like now that I've done one, I feel like I'll even be able to have so much more experiences and stories and feelings to fall back on. But again, like I can't emphasize enough, the key to this is trying to demonstrate all five senses as best you can and you'll find that it's actually a little bit exhausting having to focus that hard
1: talk to me a little bit about the duration of something like this in a one session visualization like how long are you are you visualizing in the moment
0: 5 to 10 minutes
1: okay i think it speaks to the idea of of quality and quantity that we were talking about earlier mm-hmm. if you can invest invest very uh, fully into that visualization practice for just five minutes. Mm-hmm. And if you can do that, how many times a week were you doing it?
0: Um, probably five. Like I was doing like on school nights.
1: Okay. I mean, that's consistency and that's yeah. a compounding effect of investing very heavily into something, even if for a small quantity of time, um, you know, five minutes, five to 10 minutes is a pretty insignificant amount of time. In our daily lives, but if you are all in on that moment that you're sitting in, in in that time, and imagining what is to come for you, it's mm-hmm. incredible the quality that you can derive from that.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's kind of like um, it takes a it takes a small amount of time to actually produce pretty astounding results. Mm-hmm. And I think like if you try this, or anyone who's listening tries this, I think what you'll find is battling distractions will be the hardest part. I would, like, be laying there, and I'd be, like, imagining, you know, the pitcher pitching the ball, and a thought would immediately distract me, like, as in my visual, as the ball was coming towards me, I would get distracted. I think that also has a lot to do with, like, are you kind of a spazzy person by nature? Like, I certainly won't deny I can be a little bit ADD and Mm so maybe it's harder for someone like me than someone who does find it really easy to focus but it's interesting it takes a lot of work but I think you'll be like really impressed at the results that you'll see like I if you like do you have a race on the docket right now are you training for anything specific
1: I am yeah what is it I am well (laughs) you don't want to say uh I've got something um this weekend actually I'm running 50 miles um, oh, really? and then something that I'm considering, um, early next year. So, okay. Yeah. What
0: 50 miler is it?
1: Um, it's, I don't even know. Crooked Creek. I think it's in, um, okay. Shepherdsville, Kentucky and really excited for it. Uh, a lot of elevation gain, something really? that, yeah, is going to definitely push me, um, and something that I definitely want to practice with. So, yeah. uh, something I'm looking forward to, to, to build on what you're saying. I'm I'm kind of reflecting on my own life and, you know I, i've really been surprised recently by the moments where i've felt very insecure and almost anxious mm-hmm. uh in life it's something that like i feel like i'm a, a pretty confident person typically mm-hmm. it, it's a quiet confidence but it's it's a, a quiet confidence that brings me comfort in moments yeah. that i think are testing me but what i've found is a separation between physical pursuits specifically running for me um, and life outside of those things, yeah. professional pursuits, personal pursuits. And I've noticed a distinction between the calm that I feel in physical pursuits and I'll just use the word like the, the um, anxiousness that I feel in these other pursuits. And really? I think as you're talking, what I'm reflecting on is I'm not as experienced in these other areas of life. Mm-hmm. And I also don't visualize these other areas of my life. I love running so much that not only am I going to do it every day, but I'm also going to invest my emotional energy into it. But if I'm not putting the same effort into these other pursuits, I can't expect myself to feel that same sense of calm.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, you could even like... You could use starting your podcast as an example. Like that might not have been anything that brought you any kind of anxiety, but like let's just say that it did. Mm-hmm. Maybe because you're imagining that very first podcast episode and you don't know if you're going to like have the right things to say or the right right questions to answer or you know the the right tonality or the inflection in your voice. Like you could you could literally take time, close your eyes, and put yourself in that exact scene, you're looking at your laptop, you've got your hat on backwards, you're seeing the person in front of you, you're you know closing the door because you don't want any kind of background noise. You know, um, every, anything that you can imagine, maybe even the feeling part of it might be the headphones on your ears, the pen that you might have in your hand, the paper that you might be writing on. So again, just bringing all those senses into it. I think a lot of times people think about visualization; they automatically assume it has to go with, you know, being an Olympian who's going to imagine that perfect figure skating routine, right? Because it's so uh, it requires like so much perfection. But that's not necessarily where is. That's not the only place that we could apply it. We could apply it across so many different like domains of our own life.
1: Talk to me. We've talked about visualization through the lens of success. Talk to me about any benefit to or experience of visualizing struggle and failure.
0: I think, I think it's okay as long as the visual, visualization is going to end with how it is that you plan to overcome it. Mm-hmm. So I think that's, I think that's a, a fantastic thing to bring up is like, okay, going back to my story about going up to the plate and hitting the ball. Visualizing it in the most ideal scenario would be that I hit the ball to the fence, if not over, on the first pitch. But I took the opportunity to visualize getting getting myself into different counts, right? Like, we all know the place that you don't want to be as a softball or baseball player is two strikes, zero balls, right? Because the pitcher is now going to try to throw you some trash and make you swing at it, okay? So I think it's important to visualize being in a particular situation that's going to require you to overcome and maybe feeling the adversity, feeling the turmoil, as long as that visualization is going to finish with how, um, how you want it to end. Because have you, you probably have, I was about to say, have you ever heard this? I'm going to assume you haven't. I think my mom just made it up to this day, but I used to have a really bad habit of thinking that I was, I assumed I was thinking positively. By saying things like this. Don't strike out. Don't miss the ball. Okay? Yeah. Now, when I'm saying those things, your brain automatically is going to cling to keywords. Okay? Miss. Strike out. So my mom one day said, Reagan, don't think about the pink elephant in the room. And then she paused and she said, what'd you just think about? And I said, the pink elephant. She said, I told you not to. And I was like, yeah, but it's the pink elephant, right? And so she proved, she proved to me that saying sentences like, don't do this, your brain is now clinging to the key word that you told it not to do. So instead, what can we use? Hit the ball, make solid contact, see the ball, hit the bat, right? So we're essentially framing the same intent, but we're rephrasing it so that our brain is only hearing the actionable, positive things that we want. Right, so instead of saying in a race, don't walk. We're gonna say jog. We're gonna sh- say shuffle. We're gonna say run the climb. You see what I'm saying? So like it's it's yeah. interesting because I caught myself doing that all the time. Once my mom told me not to look at that stupid yeah. pink elephant.
1: Wow, that's powerful. I've never heard that. Uh, but moms are are wise, and I don't think we <laughs> we quote our moms enough. That's that's pretty great. That one will will stick with me now. Yeah. I'll push back a little bit, not necessarily on on the point you just made, but just what I mean kind of by um, visualizing or at least considering what can go wrong. Okay, yeah. There's a, a Seneca quote, and it reads, Nothing happens to the wise man contrary to his expectation. And really what he's saying there is like, if you never consider... The things that can go wrong, you'll never yeah. be prepared for the moments when they get hard. Yeah, and I think that our ability to at least be humbled by the mm-hmm. fact that things will get really hard, yeah, and that you can visualize success and strength all you want, but something that I I really love saying is like, true strength is it, it feels like weakness. When mm-hmm. when, you're, when you're at your strongest and you refuse to quit and you continue pushing forward, think about mile 85 or 90 of a 100-mile race. You don't feel strong. You yeah. don't feel strong at all. You feel extremely weak and, and broken down because your yeah. body is, and maybe your mind is too, but you're continuing forward, and that's the strongest thing you can do.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, I love that. And I think also kind of doubling down on what you're saying, like, maybe it is completely okay to sit there and visualize just an utter failure. And
1: mm-hmm. then
0: like through that visualization, teaching yourself or prepping yourself how to avoid letting it just completely mm-hmm. get you down, right? Like yeah. are you going ahead and are you callousing that part of your brain or your mindset that doesn't or that does allow you to be able to like rebound, right? So I yeah. agree with you there.
1: The realization too that like, just because you quote unquote fail does not mean it's the end. Failure is not the end. It is in many cases the beginning of something even greater. So to come to terms with the fact that this might not go the way that I planned allows you to then say that, Hey, it's okay. Like Mm -hmm. I'm going to go out there. I'm going to give my best. I'm going to, you know, raise the stakes of this moment. And if it isn't all that I visualized it to be, if it's not, the perfect race that I hope to piece together, that's okay too. Because like we said earlier, you're going to take those moments and it's those harder moments that are actually going to motivate you to want to do it again and and to want to be better. One thing that I definitely wanted to ask you about, because this was really interesting to me in, in hearing part of your story. You mentioned that you at one point journaled, one thousand plus days nights, I think you were saying you were journaling at night, but days in a row. Yeah. How did that begin?
0: So I went when I was a sophomore in high school, I went to the Dominican Republic with um are you familiar at all with like what's called FCA I Fellowship am, yeah. of Christian athletes? Okay. Mm-hmm. So um for those who maybe don't know, it's just, it's a, it's a group that's meant to like bring athletes together that typically are, uh, commonality of having like the the Christian faith. And so, um, it just kind of takes like uh, church and sports and brings it together. So I had an opportunity to actually go to the Dominican Republic, um, with an FCA group and play softball over there and play, actually play against some of the Dominican teams. And the leader that was taking us there, he had like, he had a lot of rules, but his main role was, bring a journal and we were required to journal every night. Now he wasn't coming to our journal and looking at the date and seeing if we did it, but it was just like, Hey, exercise a little bit of integrity here make a promise to yourself and start journaling. And I got so hooked on it in those, like, I think we were there for a week that I just committed to journaling every single night. And I'm talking like, if I had a late, a late game softball or tennis or something and I was getting back and I still had homework or whatever it was, even if I wrote, today was a good day or today was a boring day or today we had a softball game, I will journal about this day tomorrow. I was at least putting pen on paper every single one of those nights, every single one. Yeah. And just, just journaling about my day.
1: What did you gain from that?
0: Well, I have a shelf full of some of my most horrifying memories. (laughs) Definitely. It's like so bad sometimes to look back and like see what I was writing about. Like sixteen year old Reagan had like the all you know the biggest problems to deal with. Like, I was gonna
1: ask if you looked back. I was I was (laughs) wondering if you
0: It's painful. It's cringy. Like we think Facebook memories are bad. Grab Mm -hmm. a journal from like junior year of high school. Um I, I I'll tell you what it allowed me to do is first and foremost, I did I did find that I I feel weird saying this. I'm not typically one to like brag on myself, but I I really do have a talent for writing. Mm -hmm. Um, Like creative writing specifically. Um, And what's funny is like in the beginning, it really just started out as like journaling about my day. And so what I got from that is like really just being able to actually spill out in a chronological order what happened that day and actually being able to go back and look. Um, But as I got older, it actually became more about like writing creatively and talking about things that were happening in my life and drawing parallels to those on Mm -hmm. paper. Um, but yeah, so I just like found this like little strand of creativity that I didn't think that I had and knowing that if I ever wanted to like pick it up that routinely again, I can. Um, or if it just comes to like being able to write something you know, sweet for my mom for Mother's Day or for my sisters, or um, it's nice to be able to like have that and be able to do it.
1: There's a really fascinating uh, Andrew Huberman podcast that uh, just came out, um, and it's it's titled "Journaling Protocol for Mental and Physical Health." In that podcast, he discusses a very specific type of journaling protocol. Okay. Um, so we're not going to discuss the details of that necessarily, but I think in a more general sense, considering a few points uh, that he mentions on journaling. One is the idea of low expressers and high expressers. Okay. So essentially all that means is that when journaling or when reflecting on a specific experience, people fall into one of two categories. Either they are low expressers in the way that they express emotion and more specifically in the types of language that they're using to describe an experience. Yeah. Or they are high expressors. They're much okay. more uh emotive and and just like language driven in the details of a specific experience. Which one would you say that you fall into?
0: High expressive.
1: High expressor, yeah. yeah. I uh man, it's hard for me. I actually I, I know I mentioned being very emotion filled earlier, at least in the context of journaling, I think I'm actually a low expressor. I have I don't know if it's a bad habit, but when I'm journaling, I, I just tend to like write to myself as if I'm my own therapist. And okay. it kind of brings me peace in hard moments, but sometimes I just want to be able to rant and get feelings out there on paper and I, I just can't do it. It's like I'm I'm having to give myself advice or something. Um, But I think for that reason, I'd probably fall into the low expressor.
0: Okay, yeah. I also think, like hearing you talk about it now, I bet if I go back and look at the style journaling where I was just kind of talking about my day, Mm -hmm. I bet I was more towards a low expressor. If I pulled out my journal to maybe talk about a specific feeling I'm having or like a stage of life – or maybe I am feeling more creative than typical, I would probably fall more into the high expressive. But just like recalling the events that happened in a day, I don't think I really got like incredibly creative there or incredibly expressive.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that that makes sense. One thing you could do um, being that you have a bookshelf full of these journals and then for anyone listening too, um, if you want to consider kind of what you fall into or or at least like, Recognize the language that you're using. The recommendation that Huberman gave was you can look back at a journal entry and you can circle the um, high expressive words that you're using, okay. and then you can you know box the lower expressive words. Maybe you look at that through like a a positive and negative sense of like this is a positive way to describe the experience or my yeah. emotions, and this is a negative sense. There's a, a few different ways to approach it um, and it's okay. certainly additional work to not only uh, make journaling a habit as you did and probably still do but to also take the time to reflect on the way yeah. that you're writing but it's really interesting when you do that because the writing turns into the also the way that you speak and all of yeah. this is tied into the way that you're thinking and if we don't recognize the thoughts going on in our mind and we're not like metacognitive in that way then we can lose control in the harder moments. And I have felt like I've reached moments where I've lost control and Mm -hmm. we all have like, that's, that's normal. Emotion gets the best of us. The experience, um, the experience truly like will shut down the prefrontal cortex of our brain, which is what, you know, logic is, is built out of. And, um, I think that if we can practice just thinking about how we're thinking, it puts us in a, a better spot to then approach a situation with uh, a little bit more peace, calm and logic.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I like that. Was that his like most recent one that he released?
1: I think it was. Yeah, okay. at the, Cause at the I'm date tot- of this recording, yeah.
0: I'm totally going to go listen. I have like I have fallen out of the habit of it. Um I think towards the end of that streak I did start to feel like it was more of something that I was checking off a list mm. instead of enjoying. So to kind of create like a timeline there, I really didn't start the more creative writing until I actually stopped journaling and then later picked up writing. I don't know why I use different words. It's just like how I define it in my head. Yeah. Um, and I think like the break from it is really what gave me a little bit more excitement to do it once I picked it back up. Um, but yeah, I have a, I think there's roughly 22, 23 front to back filled journals on a bookshelf.
1: Yeah, and, and the final point I'll kind of make on that, that journaling um, idea that Huberman discussed and, and the thing that sparked the, the thought of it was he mentioned three things that you should get out of or draw from the journaling experience or, or really that you should invest into it. Number one is write about the facts of the experience. So let's assume okay. you're just journaling about your day. Uh, the protocol that he discussed in that podcast was actually... Um, built off of journaling about the most challenging moment or one of the most challenging moments of your life. Wow. Um, and potentially like a, a, tra- a trauma um, filled experience. Mm-hmm. And, and there's a lot that goes into that. So like I said, if if you're interested in that, um, definitely give that podcast a listen. He'll, he can explain it much better than I can. But um, so number one, write about the facts of the experience. Number two, write about emotions felt at the time of the experience and felt now in reflecting on the experience. And then the third one and the final one that sparked the idea of of bringing this podcast up was any links and connections that stem from the negative experience. Oh, wow. Yeah. Building connections. And I think understanding those connections is crucial because the connections are going to be built. Like we're going yeah. to draw lines between things in our, in our brain. And I think it's the reason that when we get in a situation that we haven't given much consideration to, but that maybe pulls upon uh, a challenging moment of our lives
0: mm-hmm. that
1: we've tried to forget. Yeah. But then we're in a situation again, like you were mentioning with visualization, certain senses are activated, certain memory pathways are activated, and suddenly we're pulled right back to that moment. And we don't yeah. know how we got there, but we have to find our way through it.
0: Yeah, and I think like when you talked about drawing parallels, like I mentioned that earlier, and and this is going to sound like super strange, but something that I found myself doing when I was writing more creatively was like taking literal events or things and writing about them and drawing a parallel to something that was more f- like figurative. So like one that's coming to mind for me is like one time I wrote about how I felt like my thoughts were leaves on a tree. And I, I'm telling you, I filled like three pages about this and it went on and like, it was something that I'd never thought of, but as I was writing, it was just coming to fruition and like these like sentences and these words and these descriptors and these like examples were just coming to mind. And like to this day, it's like one of my favorite pieces that I've written and I don't think I would have ever like, completely finished that that thought or thoughts unless I would have, like, sat down and started writing about it. Mm. And it's, like, crazy where your mind will go.
1: Yeah. Wow. That's powerful. I, I didn't know we were going to dive that deep into this, but I'm happy we did for for my own reasons. Like, it's so valuable. It's just so valuable to invest that time into yourself. And yeah. I think it's really easy for us to, to believe that, You know, the best and potentially only way we can invest into ourselves is by doing and, Mm -hmm. you know, being more, doing more, um, trying to serve others more, maybe. Like, it's all action based. Like, what if the best thing that you can do for yourself is to slow down and Mm -hmm. just sit there and think and embrace the stillness, embrace the silence and the solitude? Um, Because if you can do that and if you can balance that with all of the other stuff that might come just a little bit easier to you. Mm -hmm. that's that's well-roundedness in in such a way that whenever you face a situation maybe it's a a situation being faced in a still environment or maybe Mm -hmm. it's a situation that's faced in uh, a more chaotic environment like in either case you are prepared for it because you've experienced it and you have practiced it i mean Mm -hmm. it's, it's practice
0: yeah yeah
1: so love it one thing that um I've also heard you mention is fork in the road moments. Mm -hmm. Um, These occur in life and in running. I'm sure Mm -hmm. you faced a few in your ultra marathon and I'm sure you have faced a few in life. Um, Tell me a little bit about those moments.
0: Yeah. So I would certainly say that like when I, when I immediately think about these fork in the road moments, the easiest ones to recall on are when they happen in races and it actually, this fork in the road moment is actually what I kind of deemed one of my whys when when running and, and really a, a time that I think I looked forward to. And if anyone listening hasn't, hasn't heard me talk about it, just to kind of define it or describe it again, but this fork in the road where you can't, and specifically talking about this in the form of, of pushing yourself physically, but you get to a point where you're so uncomfortable that you have to choose whether or not you want to stop and feel immediate relief, but deal with the pain, i.e. regret of quitting. Or you can choose to endure the pain longer and suffer and be uncomfortable, but live with the pride knowing that that was the way that you chose. And so you get to that moment in these long ultra races, like multiple, multiple times. And, you know, I think sometimes I get caught up in the idea that I always have to choose to keep going. And there's this like looming, I think about it sometimes of like, when am I going to have my first DNF? And like, maybe sometimes people hear that. And I'm like, well, why are you thinking about that? Like, yeah. why do you have to have your first DNF? Because, and the thing is, is like, you keep doing these races and you are going to have them now. When you DNF, does it mean that you just chose to quit or was there some sort of reason why you had to? I do think it's important to define that just because you choose to not finish something doesn't necessarily mean you quit because in these endurance feats, we are going to face situations where maybe we had to stop because of keeping ourselves safe and um, Thankfully, I haven't been in that situation yet. I've never, you know, been out there and been suffering so bad that I was putting myself in danger. I have always had the opportunity to come to this fork and I've been able to safely choose to keep suffering that the pain that I was feeling was not like deathly or anything. Um, But I think also like, you know, we were talking in the very beginning of this podcast of, Deciding to throw away or maybe compromise on routine and in order to be present with our friends and family, we could even argue that's a fork, right? Mm -hmm. Like, am I going to choose and let friends and family and memories and laughter take the back burner while I prioritize something that I have the opportunity to do every single day, or am I going to choose the fork that allows me to be more present? Um, and 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 actually enjoy myself and maybe and maybe just get away from the routine a little bit. So I think like this fork in the road can can be drawn to different parallels in life, no matter how you write it, no matter how you like predict that it's gonna happen.
1: Yeah. There's a there's a quote that I recently found. It reads, Man cannot discover new oceans unless he has the courage to lose sight of the shore. Um, that's by Andre Guide. I believe is his name. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it just speaks to the things that we don't know. And the fact that we're always willing to, to, you know, go towards what is recognizable and what Mm -hmm. we've experienced before. And um, the things that have given us the positive feedback that we're seeking. But what if we go the other way? Because we know what's best for us. Like you mentioned, you know, DNFing a race. There are times, like you mentioned, if you do it enough, it's actually the better decision to not finish the race. Yeah. But are you going to dig yourself deeper and deeper into that hole because in a way ego is taking over, but also mm-hmm. because that's all you know. Right. And is all that you know really the best way or is there potentially something to be gained from a new experience and learning yeah. something new and seeking out a new shore?
0: Yeah. 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 I mean, because I think like if someone hasn't so there's, i there's a, there's an ultra runner that I follow pretty closely on Instagram and YouTube and she actually just had her first DNF. And there's like an argument to be made that someone who has DNF'd and has felt what it feels like to DNF and then has been able to learn like how to cope with that might even have a leg up on the person who has never gotten to experience that. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, it's kind of like the saying: like you only know the su- like you don't know the you don't know the sweet if you never know the bitter you'd never know the bad if you never know the good. I said that backwards. You'll never know the good if you have never known the bad. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like you have nothing to compare it to, right? There's no there's no baseline there um, if you're only ever experiencing like one side of the coin, if you will.
1: Mm-hmm. And it, it, I think it has to go back to purpose, and if mm-hmm. we're not clear on why we're doing something. And we don't necessarily know the best path to take. So we just default to maybe what we see others doing or we default to the thing that we feel like is going to um, protect us in a way, right? Like even if it's not best for our bodies, in a way it's going to protect um, the integrity of who we are Mm -hmm. by continuing forward. But if you don't know, why you're doing it. And if that why isn't greater than simply, um, you know, the, the ego driven mind that we all have of just wanting to finish the thing that you set out to do, um, then you can't make those sound and informed decisions. For you, and you can take this any way you want I'll leave it pretty open ended. Why do you do the things you do in life? Why do you invest into the areas of your life that you invest into?
0: I think I have my dad to blame for that. Like, how so? You know, he just like my. I'm a lot. I'm a lot like my mom and my dad, but I think of the two of them, I probably take after my dad when it comes to just the like the hustle mindset. And you know, I've, I've had some conflicting thoughts recently on like you know hustle culture about like always going and never stopping. I think I used to take that a little too seriously mm-hmm. um and i think as i'm getting older maybe as i'm spending more time in sport and in work and in relationships i am finding out that you know pulling back and and maybe just like finding the pause button sometimes is actually more valuable than i would have ever thought um but i think what it boils down to is just always like finding a way to be proud of myself and if I wasn't, if I'm ever in a position where I recognize that I'm not giving 100%, that sits on me really heavily, and I find that in all different avenues, um, whether it be hitting quota in my sales job, whether it be feeling and exemplifying leadership in my in my job, whether it be completing my weekly strength and running program to the best of my ability, whether it be being a good person to the people around me. Like I just am always super aware of like, where, like, where am I at? Like, like, am I at the level that I want to be at? I'll even do this in some ways in like fearing that I'm not like spending enough time developing intellectually. Mm -hmm. Um, Like sometimes I go through phases with work where I kind of like overwork, and so at the end of the day, I'll be like, okay, so I worked, I ran, and I lifted weights. What else did I do to grow my knowledge base, my skill set? Like, I get caught up in that. Like, the other day, I was telling telling a friend that I wanted to, like, take a course on Coursera to make sure that I, like, am equipped enough in different like in different like topics to be able to just fluently talk on whether it be like history, geography, like whatever it is. Um and I talked a little bit about this in another podcast, but it wasn't until a few months ago that I think I really dialed in and figured out what it is that makes me tick that way. And on a flight one day, it just hit me that when I think about younger me, I used to kind of like obsess with and get easily inspired by older people, specifically older females who were like doing all of these things, like being very fit, competing at a, competing at a certain level, making really good money, investing their money, um, had really good relationships around them. And looking back, I think like what all of my, where all of my determination comes from is like just making sure that I'm becoming the person that younger Reagan would have been really excited about and proud of and would have wanted to hang out with. And so it feels like really good right now to say that I am that person, and like if like that is literally what makes me wake up and tick every day.
1: Mm. Yeah, I love that. I love where you took that question. Um, and we're the same person. I, I don't know what to <laughs> tell you. Like, yeah, I've had so many days where I've done my my training. I've done what I need to do with work. And I'm like, I I feel like I I'm missing something, yeah. and I realize that why don't you just like grab a book and read, or why don't you journal <laughs> and and think of, like use your brain, dude? Like, yes. it stop. We can easily turn off our brains and yeah. work, 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 and there's a time and place for it, for yeah. sure. Yeah. But if you do that too much, if you and I would imagine too, if you lean too heavily into the intellectual side of things and you never get into the work and do something really challenging physically. I would imagine you feel the same way that something is just missing. Yeah. And it's funny, uh, a realization I've had, um, Abby is a very uh, affirmative girlfriend in the way that she like verbalizes her affirmations to me yeah. on a frequent basis. And Something I've told her recently, it took me some time to realize is I'm like, I really appreciate it when you give me like compliments on um, intellectual things, (laughs) you know, like, oh, like when she tells me that she listened to a podcast and that she really enjoyed it and like the ideas of the podcast and I get those types of compliments, I almost value those more than, you know, like the, the compliments of what I can do physically. Yeah. And I, I think it's that's a testament to I've invested so much into the physical, but not as much into the mental, emotional. So yeah. now that I'm coming to a stage of life, I believe where there's more balance to that and I see the importance of both and I'm investing more and I'm seeing growth in a similar yeah. way that I've seen growth physically when I invest into that. That's something that I now value much more than I ever did. And... It also comes down to, I think, a great way to consider what you want to become and where you want to invest your energy in life Mm -hmm. is to consider what you value and respect in other people.
0: Yeah. The virtues
1: of other people are such a great indication of what you want to become. Like, Look at someone and what they're doing and and the things that impress you in others. and Don't view that as a, a limiting thing in that you can't do that, but actually in an empowering way that... Now that you recognize it, you can begin to, in your own way, replicate those same investments to get the same virtues that come from that.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's an interesting point. Like, it's Is it not really easy to see something in someone else, some sort of quality, and instead of being immediately inspired by it, you almost feel a little bit defeated by it? Because if they have it, maybe you can't. And so like, to your point, if you're ever like, in the room with people who are all smarter than you, it takes a special kind of person to feel empowered by that instead of feel inferior to them. Um, a friend actually recently sent me an Instagram, and it was basically just like his like 21 tips on life, like things that he wished he knew when he, when he was in his 20s that he does now that he's in his 30s. Mm-hmm. And one of them was like, intentionally try to put yourself in room in in a room with people who are smarter than you Mm -hmm. and also be okay with saying, I don't know. That's a big one. And that's something that like, I've caught myself doing recently is when, when someone's like talking about something and maybe they use some sort of term that I haven't, like, I don't, I'm not, it's not quite clicking what it is instead of just stopping them being like, hey, wait, I don't know what that is. I like let them keep going, assuming that the context clues are going to help me figure it out. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, what is that, right? Like, is that a pride thing? Because I don't really consider myself a super prideful person. I might be proud and confident, but I don't have like a big ego. Mm -hmm. But like, I've got to figure out why it is that I can't just admit when I don't know something um, and just kind of like own it and use that as an opportunity to learn. Because again, coming full circle here, we need like, we would be better off being inspired by people who are better than us in some form or fashion instead of just being defeated by it.
1: You know, another, another reason I really love podcasting is I certainly prepare for these podcasts, um, but I try not to over-prepare because yeah. really the best discussions for me are when I'm all in on listening and then mm-hmm. the next question is built out of the listening that I'm doing. Yeah. and the interaction that's being had and and that applies outside of podcasting too that applies in a job where you're trying to learn new skills and you're talking to someone who's more knowledgeable and has more experience i think we struggle so much to turn off the dialogue in our yeah. brain that yeah. we can't actually engage with the dialogue that's and happening before listen. us yeah absolutely yeah
0: no i'm completely with you like I've done a fair share of listening to podcasts, and I feel like you can pick up on like they ha- they yeah. came to the podcast with like a list of bullet points. Mm-hmm. I think it's really healthy to have like a loose skeleton, um, whether that be podcasting or a sales call or whatever it is. But when the comments and the questions are born organically through the conversation being had, it's. Like listeners can pick up on that, like I can pick up on that as a guest, right? Like I can tell that like you and I have very much had a very organic conversation today, just based on what the other is saying, Mm -hmm. which is like super appreciative. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, Um, I think there's an underlying theme, uh, many underlying themes, but one that I really wanted to ask you about directly um, is just presence, and I I know we discussed it earlier in the podcast, but. Um, anything that you found as far as uh, applicable pieces of advice for people who feel like they struggle to be present? I know mm-hmm. I have fallen into that category. I still do on many occasions, but I'm getting better. Um, mm-hmm. But just the presence aspect of, of life is, is so huge. I, I think we're living half of our human experience if we're not being present in yeah. the moment, um, whether it be in interactions with others or whether it just be being present while we're by ourselves in a quiet environment. Have you found anything um, in your last few years of, of personal growth that have really allowed you to be more present?
0: Yeah. I would say one thing that I started implementing was um, a do not disturb schedule on my phone. Yeah. So something that I struggle with is feeling like I have to respond to something immediately a text message, uh, a phone call. Answer the phone call if I miss it. Call them back. An Instagram DM, even like a comment, commenting back. And I didn't necessarily think that I had a problem with this until I experienced a situation where I didn't have my phone. So, like for example, um, I think a really recent example is I was in Hawaii with my family. We went to the Pearl Harbor Museum. And you weren't allowed to bring a bag in. And I didn't want to carry my phone in my hand. So I left my phone in the car. And what I realized is that I don't struggle to not have my phone. I struggle to not respond to my phone when there's a notification, right? So to elaborate on that, while I was out with my family, I wasn't thinking, oh my gosh, my phone's in the car. I got to get back to my phone. I wonder how, how many text messages I have. I was never thinking that because I didn't miss it. On the contrary, if I would have had my phone at that Pearl Harbor Museum with my family the entire time that I would have had it, if I would have been getting notifications, I would not have had the discipline to just not respond to them. So something that I need to actually be better about, because I do think I'm kind of back in a bad phase of being a little bit too connected to my phone, um, is something I want to do is just implement like larger windows of Do Not Disturb. So right now I think mine turns on at like 8 or 9 and turns off around like 7 a.m., and I think something that I could be better about is implementing larger windows in, like, the evening or morning that I turn on Do Not Disturb. And just don't worry about the notifications that are that are populating, like, behind that Do Not Disturb wall.
1: Yeah. Have you ever read uh, Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People?
0: No, but I've seen it. I've seen okay. the cover. Like, I know that title.
1: Yeah. It's, it's an amazing book. I've read... Um, I think in college and I definitely need to to read it again. It's it's definitely like rereadable yeah. um and worthy of that. But there's um one of the more popular aspects of the book is uh what's called like a time management matrix. Uh-huh. Um so essentially imagine like four quadrants. Quadrant 1 is important and urgent. So there's important matters And then there's also urgent matters. Urgent Mm -hmm. matters, the best example, like you just mentioned, being the notification. We feel like it has to be attended to right now, but Mm -hmm. also that it is highly important. There are stakes involved with that, let's just say, notification. Um, So in many ways, like that quadrant is reactive. The Mm -hmm. urgency aspect of it makes it to where we're reacting to the important thing, as opposed to quadrant number two which is important, but not urgent. Okay, now, yeah. I'll come back to quadrant number two really quickly just to finish it out. Quadrant three would be not important, but urgent. Many times, actually notifications, uh, let's just say social media notifications would probably fall into that one.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and then quadrant number four would be not important, not urgent. Coming back to quadrant number two, though, important and not urgent. I think the issue is that we disregard quadrant number two for quadrant Mm -hmm. number one. And that's really the argument that I remember um, Covey making in the book is we have to be so intentional in our mindfulness and in our planning that we don't always disregard those important matters that may not be as urgent. We have to be proactive in addressing those matters so that we can plan to get things done as opposed to just doing things in response to what's coming at us that day.
0: Yeah, I mean, because I think, like, when I hear those quadrants, like, admittedly, I think I I deem everything important and urgent. Yeah. Like, come on. And the thing is, too, now that I'm thinking about it, it almost does the important and urgent matters a disservice Mm -hmm. if we consider everything else just as important and requiring just as much urgency. Mm Mm-hmm like I've never even had that thought until just now but like literally yeah. that's something that I feel like I can implement I feel like the the second thing going back to your original question about like how to maintain presence for me something that I've implemented is if I know that there is going to be something in my mind a task, a desire, a need that is going to take over and 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 keep me from being present I'll always try to do that first in my day So I know we've been using like vacation a lot as an example here in this podcast, but working out on vacation, if I'm able to do it, it's going to happen first thing. Because if I put it last, the entire time that I'm laying on the beach or on a hike or with my family or at lunch, whatever, I'm probably thinking more about something it is I need to do. The same could be said with... A work item like mm-hmm. I work from home I have a really flexible work schedule a lot of autonomy in my in my job and if I have some really important work items that need to be done I will do those before I go on my run so that on my run I can actually be present there in my own mind seeking some solitude instead of thinking about the work items that I didn't do and have to do when I get home so that's another mm-hmm. little like small exercise that I've tried to implement a lot too.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's actually very similar to kind of the routine that I've fallen into um, as well. And I think that was a, a really big encouragement too is certainly the urgent things have to be attended to, mm-hmm. but you have to be intentional about when you allow those things to creep in yeah. because if you allow them to, if you allow it to be like a, a steady stream, you'll never get to those not urgent things. And really, oftentimes, it's it's those important matters that aren't as urgent that are really like what's tugging at us. It's really the things that we want to manifest. It's the the businesses that you want to create. It's the goals that you want to pursue. Like yeah. these things aren't urgent unless we bring urgency to them. Right. So you know, how do you do that? You understand, I think going back to the why, like you understand why you want to do it. You have a a deeply rooted reason for pursuing that thing, but also you have to to reduce the noise. You have Mm -hmm. to quiet the volume of the world. There's another book, can't remember the name of it right now, but it basically addresses those urgent matters as like a whirlwind. Yeah. And if you're always like stuck in the whirlwind, spinning around and like kind of getting hit in the face by all these different things that are spinning around with you, You'll never be able to face the things that you actually want to manifest. Right. So to quiet that noise, to allow yourself to, you know, really think about what's important and not just believe that everything that is urgent is important, right. is a is a really amazing way to, I think, learn a lot about yourself.
0: Yeah. No. Agreed. I mean, even just like, again, hearing those. I wrote the name of that book down. But just hearing the way that we can differentiate between the way that we need to respond to something and the and the difference between urgent and important. Like that's that's really cool. That's that's worth spending some more time on for sure.
1: Yeah. Well, Reagan, this was such a fun discussion. Um thank you so much for joining me. Um I truly believe it will not be the last time that we sit down for a podcast. Um and I just I wish you all the best in, in everything that you're doing, everything that you're pursuing. Um, I'll be in your corner supporting you because, uh, I know, I know you're doing amazing things.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you. Maybe we can, uh, reconnect after the the next upcoming race.
1: Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll get out on a similar trail sometime in the future.
0: <laughs> yeah, that'd be awesome. I'll find you in Kentucky.
1: <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'd rather come to Colorado if you don't. Yeah, mind. that's
0: true. That's true. Come back out and visit. Yeah.
1: <laughs> All right. Thanks.
0: Yep. Yeah, you got it.